Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today, I'm talking to Walt Foster, a Army JAG who has fluctuated between active duty and reserves. I'll let him tell that story. Walt is someone that I have met through the power of LinkedIn and my podcast, and Walt has offered to come aboard to tell his unique story, which I'm very grateful. So, Walt, thanks for coming aboard. My pleasure. I really uh, enjoy the opportunity to speak to you, Tom. So, Walt, how about giving the crowd a little bit of background as far as who you are and what you've done in the military? It's been a long and winding road, an amazing journey for me through my time in the military. May 17th, 1987, I started my military journey in the United States Navy. I went to Naval Air Station Pensacola to start uh, Aviation Officer Candidate School. I got into the program when President Reagan had his big push for the 600-ship fleet. The Navy needed pilots, and I got into the flight program as an aviator with a two-year degree as a Naval Aviation Cadet. Went through AOCS in Pensacola, primary flight training at Whiting Field, Florida. Was uh, fortunate enough to do well and was selected for jets and then went to Meridian, Mississippi for intermediate and advanced strike fighter. Spent some time in the Navy flying. And then after that, after the first Gulf War, I got out, went to law school, decided I didn't want to float anymore. I spent all the time that I wanted to on ships, ended up taking a commission in the Army. And this was in 96, 97 time frame. It was the big Clinton drawdown where we were moving a lot of our forces out of Europe and the Army was becoming considerably smaller. The Army offered me an opportunity to either go on active duty or to take a reserve billet. And at that time, I was really interested in trying to pay back all those student loans that I had taken. So I wanted to to get an immediate job. And while I was in law school, I had worked as a certified legal intern student prosecutor in Maine at the prosecutor's office prosecuting different cases. So I ended up moving to Florida, getting a job as a prosecutor. I was working in the Army Reserves and was a major crimes prosecutor in Tampa, Florida. Several years there, then opened my own practice uh, in Tampa, and everything was going really well. And then the, the planes hit the buildings in New York and the Pentagon, and I was mobilized to active duty with the 3rd Infantry Division for the invasion of Iraq. Spent some time on active duty and mobilized and demobilized about three times in the early 2000s each time having to close my law practice. So ultimately, my wife and I decided in 2008 that we would just stay on active duty. I took a position as an AGR, which is Active Guard Reserve, which I really think is the best deal the Army has because you get assigned to reserve units that are in incredibly interesting places all throughout the United States. I had assignments in Atlanta, in Silicon Valley, in California. One at Fort Knox, not quite as interesting. Had some varied assignments as a deputy SJA and SJA, culminating in my final assignment now where I'm uh, a prosecutor with the Office of the Chief Prosecutor, Office of Military Commissions, and just finished up a case where I was the trial counsel on the United States versus Maja Khan. At this point, I had decided that it was time for me to transition back to the civilian world after some considerable amount of time, 35 years of total service, 18 years of active duty, 17 years of reserve service. I'm going to go back and spend a little bit more time in the reserves and ultimately retire probably at the end of 2023 or sometime in 2024. So during the last 
six months, I've been heavily digging into the transition process and going through the full spectrum of trying to get myself prepared and going through the emotional side of it, doing a resume. You know, I haven't done a resume in over 20 years. Applying for jobs. I mean, I haven't applied for a job in, in decades. I always knew what my job was and what I was going to be doing. A little bit of the unknown. You know what we do as judge advocates and as advisors to senior legal officers. It's no surprise to you and me and people that work and walk in those circles, but civilians don't know what we do. So right. trying to translate that significant experience is really a challenge yeah. to be able to put it into terms that senior civilian lawyers can understand and appreciate. For all intents and purposes, your transition from active to reserve status with the Army, which is something the Navy doesn't do to a great degree, this is essentially your leaving of military service now. It's not going to come later. It really is. It's the change of a considerable demand signal where I'll go from being a full-time military officer and advisor and attorney on active duty to a very limited part-time role as a reservist. Not to minimize what our reservists do is important, but it's not the same 24-7 demand signal that you and I are used to as duty officers. So it's, it's a big change for my family, my children, my wife. Uh, my wife and I have been married 15 years. My oldest daughter's 14. My youngest daughter's 12. All they've ever known me to do is wear the uniform. You are essentially in the same position as us in that all your relevant recent experience has been wearing the uniform, and you're going to make that military to civilian transition. So there's a lot we can learn from your lesson here. Yeah, it's, this last hitch is a continuous, basic 14 years of active duty service and transitioning back to the civilian sector. What did you learn during the transition process? One of the things that stands out of my mind the most is that everybody has a different opinion, some of them very strong, on what a proper resume looks like. I've had some very strong opinions about that. And as a result, I think I have about 10 different resumes now. The takeaway for me is you've got to tailor your resume for the specific job you're applying for. There is no one size fits all. Everybody has a different opinion about it. And you know what? The only resume that really matters or counts is the one that gets you an interview. That's the one that counts. That's the one that matters because at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get in front of the first line decision maker for that particular opportunity. What kind of opportunities have you been pursuing? I primarily have pursued in-house counsel roles, advisory roles in the areas of ethics, compliance, contracting, privacy, you know, things of that nature. That's what I've been pursuing. And then ultimately, that's what I was successful in obtaining as I you know, finally got my written offer uh, Monday of this week, a couple of days ago. And I accepted that offer yesterday. Start with the new company on the 31st of May. So tell me, how long did it take for you when you started applying to you actually got a job? You know, it's actually incredibly short. I don't know if I did everything right or if I was lucky or probably the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think I actively started applying for jobs right around the middle of March to the end of March. So about six weeks, four to six weeks, and you got, a, yeah. you got employment. I was just pounding it. I was also in the HOH cohort 22-2 and uh, did all those interviews with the fellowship too. But And, and I ultimately did get offered an HOH fellowship with a, with a very good company. So tell us about that, because that's not something that I I know about Hire for Heroes, but I've not looked into it. So how does it work? 
Yeah, so it's a, a program that was developed in conjunction with the U.S. Department of Commerce and Department of Defense, whereby DOD allows transitioning service members to apply for and seek out fellowship opportunities through the SkillBridge program mm-hmm. with corporations who are SkillBridge approved. And so you have big names like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, every defense contractor you can think of. And they offer fellowships in every position you can imagine from project management slash engineering to logistics supply chain. Not as many legal positions, but there are some legal positions out there and any number of different types of positions in between. Lots of different opportunities that fit a multitude of different skill sets. And what these companies are trying to do is actually line up an opening that they have with the folks that they're going to bring on. Not everybody that takes a fellowship will get a hiring opportunity, but that's sort of the intent of the program. And these corporations are quite convinced that people who are leaving the military have a very desirable skill set they're looking for. We tend to be people who show up at the right place at the right time in the right uniform and do what we're supposed to do. Give us some of the details. So you signed up with Hire for Heroes. Was it a matter of submitting a resume to a portal? Was it a matter of, you said there was a there was a fellowship program. How did that work? So you apply for HOH program writ large at first. There are qualification requirements. You have to be a transitioning service member. You have to have a certain amount of time that you're available before you leave active duty in order to participate in the program. They accept you first. Then Probably the most challenging part is to get your command to sign on to this. The program, the the statutory basis for this program allows commanding officers to be the final authority on this matter. So they have to agree to let you go for six to 12 weeks. That's not always easy with every command. Not every commanding officer is going to buy into this. Everybody always feels like they need people... They need that workforce to the last second. A lot of commanders understand the benefit of the program, not only to the individual service member, but they understand what DOD is trying to do here. And they will do their best to try to grant individual service members the opportunity to participate in the program. But not all will, unfortunately. And it's up to their discretion. So you've got to get their buy-in. Once you've got that buy-in, you provide your resume to the cohort leader. My cohort leader was uh, Ms. Wilson here in uh, Adela Watson, rather, here in the National Capital Region. She sort of is our sheep herder, so to speak, and she sends out your resume. And our cohort was about 120 people, by the way. Sends it out to all these different companies, hundreds of companies. And they all review and they all decide who they're going to interview. So there's a process of interviewing that takes place over about three weeks. And then each individual company, depending on their demand signal, will select a certain amount of fellows. The fellows themselves rank order the opportunities that they wish to take in order of desire. And then the cohort leader matches folks to those opportunities. I would have started my fellowship on May 9th, but I was also applying to jobs in the meantime. I have a a somewhat different skill set than most lawyers. I'm also a mechanical engineer. I also have some pretty significant project management experience with engineering projects on the ground. I was able to sort of leverage that experience along with my legal background. And I think that's probably what set me apart from other people who had applied for this particular position because the company that I got the fellowship from and the company that I got hired by are both national 
EPC contractors, i.e. construct large construction companies that did between two and four billion dollars worth of business last year. You were pursuing these opportunities in parallel. Correct. Had you gone the Hiring Our Heroes fellowship or internship route, the mechanism for doing that is the DOD Skill Bridge program. Yes. A person using Hire Our Heroes then has to comply with all the scale bridge requirements like command approval, but also burning down your leave before you begin the internship. And it's something that binds you for whatever period of time that you've signed up to do up to six months, but basically would take a person up to their separation or retirement date. Correct. On the Hiring Our Heroes, on the internship fellowship, you did get some offers on the ethics front? I did. I I got an offer from a large EPC contracting company to come in and be in-house counsel in a position where I would have been doing compliance and ethics and contract review and any gamut of different issues that a large EPC, which is engineering procurement and construction contractor would experience during that process of, say, building a power plant. So on that, and I, I'm just trying to walk myself and others through this. So we, we know you have the mechanical engineering part, and then you had the project management experience. But what on the compliance front? How did you approach your resume to build that compliance aspect? I'm assuming you used your military background, but tell us I how did. you... Tell us how you sold that. I had five different interviews, which I guess is what corporate America does nowadays. I I didn't expect that there would be that many interviews, but there were. And from the compliance side, I talked about the different rules and requirements that general officers need to follow in such a high visibility strategic leadership position. And I talked about the different requirements that general officers, flag officers have to follow in these great positions of authority that they have and how their judge advocate is absolutely critical in helping them navigate these sort of perilous waters. So that's something that I talked about to everybody that I that I interviewed with. Of course, all the ethics, federal ethics regulations that have to be uh, adhered to and abided by as uh, senior military officers and how we help them navigate those waters as well. I took kind of a general overarching view as to how we ensure that senior leaders like CEOs and directors have to deal with different compliance issues, that this is something that lawyers do in the military every day. Yeah, it's just that we have a different premise. We have the ethical principles of federal service, whereas the compliance folks have their federal sentencing guidelines. We're both trying to end up at the same point, which is to keep from embarrassment or people getting in trouble. Correct. Did you even think about trying to obtain the uh, compliance and ethics professional certification? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I was talking about when we talked about the salary package is how willing they, they would be to fund those different uh, certification courses in schools, mm-hmm. what have you. I was also ta- talked about uh, procurement in uh, this particular company that I got hired by. It does not work too much in the federal space. Sure. How this would be an opportunity for them because I'm familiar with federal contracting to expand and diversify their business portfolio. So that was something else that I talked about how I could be value added to the company. And additionally, you know, when I talked to them about what I thought they're, you know, I asked them, what is your, what is your number one challenge over the next five years? And that is 
they're experiencing so much growth. They're having a hard time finding, you know, skilled folks and skilled people. And I said, well, are you part of the SkillBridge program? Are you part of the program that sets out these opportunities for service members that are leaving active duty? And and they're not. So they asked me, hey, would you be willing to help us uh, create a program for our company to try to get ourselves into this space where we might be able to hire some of these folks leaving the military? Let's go through the interview process. You said you had five different interviews. The first interview was with one person, and that was the senior HR person. Could you discern a purpose of that? Was it just to size you up? Were they throwing salary questions at you right away to see if you were in the ballpark? So were you able to detect a theme or purpose of each of these interviews, or did you just answer the mail when they said, come back? I think so. I think I was able to sort of sense out or suss out, so to speak, what they were trying to accomplish by each interview. First one being, is he sane? Is he competent? You know, it's like the first hurdle. Does this look like a guy that is somebody that we could work with? That was the first one, sort of a generalist type approach to my background and experience. The second interview was with the company's vice president of legal and risk management, an attorney, one attorney, and I met with her. We talked more with more sort of granularity about my experience and a little bit about what some of the challenges of the job would be. And then I was able to relate what those challenges were to my specific experience. The third interview was with that same lawyer and another lawyer who was also the chief administrative officer. And they flew from the company's West Coast headquarters to their East Coast headquarters, and they interviewed me in person in that third interview. I got to assume at this point you're thinking, hey, this is the job's not a lock, but this is looking pretty good if you're getting to a third interview. Yeah, exactly. And then we had the third interview. We talked again more about what the job would entail, my duties, and they asked more questions about my experience. A little bit of a little bit of scenario-based stuff, but not too much. Again, mostly based on qualifications and the different types of work I'd done in the past and et cetera. That went very well. They called me back and said, hey, we'd like you to interview with our vice president of operations for the East Coast. Two weeks later, I interviewed with that person. And this was like a senior engineer, senior operations guy, somebody that I would be giving advice to. I got to feel that was more of a, they wanted to test out my engineering background a little bit, my project management background, and then see if I was somebody that they felt like I could work with. That went well. And then my final meeting was with the chief operating officer of the company. Uh, So I guess he's probably second in command, Mm -hmm. uh, the chief CEO of the company. So then I met I met with him for again for about an hour, and it was quite similar to the fourth interview. But again, that apparently that you know that went very well. I thought it went very well, but you obviously you never really know. And then basically these two guys, you know, interviewers four and five, basically sent an email to the lawyers and said, "Hey, do whatever you have to do to hire this guy." So now you get into the, the particulars of compensation and everything else. Yeah. How did you prepare? to negotiate with these guys regarding compensation? Just read as much as I could get my hands on, books, the internet, anything. You know, typical lawyer stuff, man. We, we're good at researching. We call friends. <laughs> we talk to people who've gone through this before. We read books. We, we read articles on the internet. We just get out as much information as we can and just kind of formulate our own. Yeah, did you reach out to anybody that had worked there previously through LinkedIn or? I really didn't because I didn't want to create any kind of a informational ripple effect. You know, sure. I wanted to kind of 
stayed detached from the company? You know, obviously I'm not asking for skinny. I know a lot of times compensation is confidential. You don't want to show the company's hand in your hand, but were you guys very far apart? Not really. You know, we all want to make as much money as we can. We all, everybody wants to be compensated fairly, especially based on your experience and your skill set. Money is important to me, but it's not as important as some other things. And biggest takeaway I got with these folks after all these interviews is just how reasonable and decent these people were and how, how well I was going to be able to work with them. Money's important, but I think money became more of a secondary thing for me because, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a pretty good pension. My wife works. I've been pretty conservative in my spending over the years. I really don't have much debt. It was more important to me to maximize my situational experience as opposed to maximizing money. Now, I think I did pretty well from the money side on this. And there's some really great benefits uh, as well. And it's an employee-owned company. They throw between 30 and 58 grand a year in a retirement account for you that doesn't require any contribution on your part. And then after five years, you're fully vested in that, that money. Uh, it's an employee-owned company, so everybody's sort of got in in the game, so to speak. You can always go somewhere and make more money if that's mm -hmm. your primary goal. Could I have probably gone to another company and made 30 grand more? Yeah, probably. Would I be as happy working at a place at like maybe Amazon? I don't think so, not based on some of the people I've talked to. Not that Amazon's a bad company. I think it's a great company. I think it probably has a different mindset than uh, this company does. You, you hit a great point because I had someone reach out to me. They were interested in working at Amazon for that person's name to somebody that I knew at Amazon. And he talked to this person and he just said, you know, it's very important that you understand Amazon's operations, Amazon's culture. He told me a while ago that from essentially Halloween until Christmas, it's burn and turn. It's all hands on deck. And it's a very fast paced and dynamic company. And so the point that he made is if you're up for that challenge, you'll do well. If you're looking for somewhere that you can stroll in at nine o'clock, have your coffee and kind of ease into the day, it's probably the wrong place. And the importance of researching and understanding the culture in which you're going to be walking into. It sounds like it's a cultural difference as far as the expectations that you want advice, what theirs is. We all know what an active duty 06 makes you know, around 215, 220, which compares actually fairly well to the civilian world, believe it or not. We've caught up a lot with the military over the last several years, and I guess we're getting another 5% raise next year. I'm pretty close to what I made on active duty within striking distance. I probably could have held out for more and probably hammered them. But I didn't want to go into the job with that kind of atmosphere. I basically said, look, I know that in six to 12 months, you guys are going to understand the value that I bring and you're going to want to keep. Your story is one of, uh, of a relatively soft landing. Then. It, it really is. I don't know if it's just pure luck or, you know, like everything in life, it's probably somewhere in the middle. I like to think I was pretty aggressive in my, my preparation and the execution of my co-op. This company that I landed with was just a company that advertised on LinkedIn. And I just sent a direct message to the LinkedIn HR person and said, hey, do you have a minute to talk to me about this opportunity and what I could potentially bring to your company? And she said, yeah, let's set up a time and talk. So we talked and then that turned into an interview and then you know the rest of the other interviews. So it was just me being like any other military officer, taking an initiative, had a plan, and then just 
executed my plan. You do sound sort of uh, the outlier in a sense that, you know, you look at statistics and they tell you the majority of the statistics comes not from a job advertisement, but from a network and the connections and those kind of things. But one, you had a very short turn and two, yours was something that you saw on LinkedIn. So, you know, who knows, maybe with what we're seeing with folks not working, not going back to work post-pandemic, maybe you're a trendsetter and not an outlier. Who, who knows? knows? Wow, that's a great story. And I think that any all of us that have yet to go through the process, and I know I'm here going, I want to be Walt Foster now. Yeah, I made it my goal. I applied to one or two jobs a day. And I got to tell you, 98% of them I never heard a peep from. I got a very nice response from the general counsel of Black Rifle Coffee. He wrote me a hand note and said, hey, I don't think this position is for you. I think you got too much experience, but hey, you know, we're growing like crazy. I'd like to talk to you again in six months. Most people don't even acknowledge your existence, unfortunately. I think that's just the world we live in now. Where were you looking for these jobs? Were you going to specific company websites? Were you getting job alerts? Were you looking at LinkedIn? Where were you fishing? I got to tell you, it was mostly LinkedIn because LinkedIn makes it easy. LinkedIn really makes it easy to step up to the plate and take you two or three swings every day. I'm on a JAG server list. That's mostly government jobs. And I really wasn't interested in going back to the government and doing a GS type position. I did consider going to the patent office because I do have some patent law experience. And one of my goals is to sit for the patent bar this upcoming year and get that credential as well. But I just LinkedIn. I I mean, I can't say enough about LinkedIn. There are so many tools on it from resume writing to how you interview. I was like a baby bird just kind of going through this process again, because the last time I really went through this is when I graduated from law school. Some of the things that you hit on there about you don't hear back, getting over the expectation that you're going to get responses, that you're going to get a definitive yes or no. You just keep firing away. Hopefully one of those strikes gold. And I had someone else, a senior person, tell me their understanding of how this process works for a lot of companies. And he put it in kind of terms that you and I really understand really well. You know, the gatekeepers for this process are usually like an E3. They're getting tons of applications and they're just overwhelmed. You know, you just kind of fall by the side. When I talked to this lawyer, he said, hey, listen, know that the value of having an advocate on the inside is tremendous for that very reason. They get tons of applications and maybe yours just doesn't make the cut. Maybe it gets through the artificial intelligence screener. And they still, instead of having 500, maybe they have 50. And for whatever reason, yours just doesn't make the cut. And the value of having someone on the inside of that company saying, hey, we want to include this resume here. And even though it did not make your cut, we want it in the pile to be considered. All those applications you submitted were not necessarily wasted. You learned. I learned from everyone. And let me tell you something else that I thought was absolutely priceless. And that is Veterati. Veterati, the site where you can reach out basically to specified mentors in your field. I teamed up with about six different people. I'm trying to remember this young lady's name, but I think she got out of the Army JAG Corps as a major and she got a corporate counsel position too. And she told me, she walked me through it blow by blow and told me how she did it, how she related the different jobs that she had to the JAG Corps to a corporate in-house counsel position. 
she talked to me for about an hour. She actually sent me her resumes. I sent her one of my resumes and she walked me through it and told me how to do it. So you've mentioned a couple organizations and I'm just going to put their websites out there. The first one was Hiring Our Heroes, right? So that was hiringourheroes.org. And then Veterati is veterati.com. And that is spelled Victor Echo Tango Echo Romeo Alpha Tango India.com. Americans Mentoring Veterans. Yeah, and this this Veterati is one that I never have never heard about. So I'm telling you, it is money. I talked to several different people that had transitioned from active duty. They told me about the process they went through. They gave me tips. They're, they told me how many cuts they had to take at the plate before they got a bite. It was really good to kind of put stuff into perspective for me about what my expectations could and should be. It was really a really useful tool. So Walt, do you have any final points that you want to make? A couple of the biggest takeaways that I have, and I mentioned them both briefly, is that reach out and find a mentor to help you through this process. There are so many people who have gone through the same process already. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Don't try to do it on your own. There are people that were helped previously and they want to help you. Leverage that experience and talent and use it as a force multiplier. Most of us that have gotten to this point in our career have got some significant talents. You got to figure out how to package it. You got to figure out how to transmit it to the company of your choice. Second, don't get too wrapped around the axle or freaked out about the resume because you're going to have 100 different people who tell you how to do it 100 different ways. The only right way is the one that gets you the freaking interview. That's the one that counts. That's the one that matters. So remember who your audience is. You've got to tailor your resume to that specific audience and you got to do it every time. And it's a lot of work and it's a pain in the butt, but I think that's how you increase your odds of being responded to. Corporations now in the United States and probably everywhere in the world, they want results. So you need a results-based and results-oriented resume. It's not enough just to tell people what you've done. You need to tell them what you've done, how you did it, and what were the results that were generated by you doing so. That's what companies want to see. So, Walt, thank you. My pleasure. Glad I could be of help. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW50 Associates LLC production. 